Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. If you believe in spirits and communicating with those who've passed, Charles Anthony Merchant Childs will take you beyond the grave. That's the name of his book. His stories are true and only the names of the living have been changed. Now, your passion to be an innkeeper is what brought you beyond the grave, right? I did that in a historic inn in Rockland, Maine, where I lived. And then when I moved here to Florida, I worked at one of Florida's most haunted inns in Ocala. I didn't know there was a haunted inn in Ocala. Yes, and we were on taps and ghost hunters. That's so cool. Yeah. I called them and they came and and did an investigation and yeah, because I'm I'm spirit sensitive and so that was a, a very active property. They were they were two Victorian manors, the Seven Sisters Inn side by side. And both of them were very active, each in its own different way. Well, your whole family seems to have a spiritual nature. On my mother's side, of my father's side, no. But it comes down through my mother's side. I'm a direct descendant from Samuel Wardwell, who was the last male to be hung in the Salem witch trials. And he was accused of being a wizard because he could foresee things that were going to happen in people's lives. Um, He was an empath. So unfortunately, they hung him and his his wife and his granddaughter, they were all in prison. But when she got out, she and her husband, Major William Eaton, left uh, Andover, where they lived, and moved to an uninhabited island. It was only Native Americans that lived there in Deer Isle, Maine, which was then Massachusetts. And so I'm a direct descendant from them, as most of the original islanders are. Is this the island that you refer to in your book? I do refer to that island, Deer Isle, but Monteith Island is is a privately owned island that belonged to my ancestors. My great-grandmother um, was the last one in the family to live there, and it's privately owned now, so I changed the name of the island to protect its privacy. How about that? But Monteith is, is an old family name, and they're all buried all over there. And there's a chapter in my book that tells about Cousin Abby Monteith, which played an, an important role in my mother's early life. So the the book starts out with kind of a feel of how the settlers must have arrived on this uninhabited island and settled it. And a lot of that was brought forth to me through vivid dreams and the next day i would make notes because i i had alice i had no intention of writing a book that was the furthest thing from my mind i went to see a medium 
in Maine when I was working. I went one summer up there to work. She's a, a well-known medium in New England, and I went there for totally different reasons. When I went to see her, she said to me, she said, do you write? And I said, well, I write letters. She said, no. She said, do you write? She said, you're going to write a book, and it's going to take you 10 years to write this book. Oh. And then, and then she proceeded to tell me things that she would have no way of knowing, coming up with people's names and telling me where I was going to go the next week. Wow. Which, yeah. And she was right, right on the mark. It took me 10 years to the month to write this book. But, but why 10 years? I, I don't know. Because I, I would feel it's hard to explain unless you, unless you're spiritually inclined to, it's, it's just something that you, you couldn't sit down and say, okay, and start writing. It's like when the light went on in my head and I felt it, I spiritually felt it. And then I would sit down to my laptop and type away. So, some of the, the chapters in my book, I don't even remember writing, especially the one about the death of my great-great-grandfather, because I'm experiencing it through my great-grandfather's eyes. So these weren't stories that you were recalling. These weren't stories that were told to you. These are stories that came to you through the people who are no longer with us. It's a mixture, Alice. Some of them, yeah, it's a mixture. Because each chapter is a little story of its own, and or an experience, I should say. Uh, bits and pieces of what I experience in, in my paranormal life. Mysterious things that happened to my mother. A phone call that she got late at night from somebody that she had no idea who it was. They were calling her from Florida, telling her that her father, who died in 1928, was standing there beside him and was explaining the real cause of his death. And that's all in the book. Jeez, that's crazy. The, the book isn't even if I could use this term, it's not even out there yet. And the, the books that I have sold myself and that are autographed, um, that I purchased in the very beginning, I sold three quarters of those already. And people have been getting wind of it somehow on Amazon because I've had people, they bought it in Wales, Scotland, Canada, all all around and it's five the five stars the reviews are glowing and they all say that once they start reading this book it's only 122 pages but once they start reading the book the book has a spirit of its own and it pulls the reader into it and they can't put it down oh man and and um i'm going to try to set up book signings and talk about parts of the book because once anybody gets me 
started talking about the book i i can't shut up <laughs> and 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 they immediately say well how much is the book do you have any with you <laughs> because i i just went to maine to visit my family and i was there for three weeks and i sold a case of books out of my trunk while i was up there that's amazing that's good to know see yeah. stories like that gives authors who are listening hope yeah. There really is hope. I mean, I think a lot depends on your book. I mean, you've got a very unique book. You've got a very unique story here as well. But I'm wondering when you meet someone or when you're talking about your book in front of a room full of people, do you sense things from people you don't know? Um, I do that in general. I sense that in, in general. general. Yes, because my mother always told me, not to wear my my spirit life on my shirt sleeve <laughs> and she said don't tell everybody things that you see and hear because not everybody has the gift they have spiritual blinders and so the medium kind of unlocked that door for me and my spirit guidance started flowing and because because I'm an empath and I'm also spirit sensitive, I can tell who is like-minded and I'm an I'm an old soul, so I can connect with other old souls. So if even if I'm talking to an individual that I meet and they say, Oh, you know, what is this book about? It says beyond the grave, it looks spooky or scary, you know. And if I when I start talking to them, I can immediately tell if the lights have come on in their head and they're eager to hear more or if their their eyes narrow up and it's like they're guarding themselves and pulling away from me. I can I can sense that. And so that's the time that I shut up and you know so I I'm want to encourage anybody that has this sort of thing in their life and they're afraid to to put it out there or to tell people what they experience or what they see just to follow your heart and to follow that voice in there that guides you i think that's good advice i think if uh if that's something you have inside of you you should go with it yeah but i think it's scary too i think people are afraid or they think, I mean, honestly, I think for myself, when I feel like I am having an experience, when I feel like someone I love is talking to me, I wonder, all right, how much of this, how do you know that you're not just making it up in your own mind? How do you know? There is no way of knowing if you're, I mean, I guess, like you said, you know, when you go to the medium and they start naming names and experiences, they couldn't possibly know. Mm -hmm. All right. That's mm -hmm. that's a pretty good indication that something else is going on there. But you know what I mean? Y your brain can make you think all kinds of things. Well, that's true. That's true. But you also have to be aware of feeling. Like, let me give you an example. I was a church musician for 21 years. I was a music director. My mother was a gospel singer. And I have old recordings of her on 78 records of her singing. She used to sing on the radio. And when she would sing in different churches, um, there were, was a certain hymn that she would sing. And it's one of my favorite hymns. Well, now when I sit and play it at the piano, 
periodically she will visit me. And how I know that she's visiting me is that in real life before she died, while she was standing there singing, she would put her left hand on my right shoulder. And so when I play that particular hymn, oftentimes I will feel that hand on my left shoulder. And sometimes when I'm not feeling well, she will come to me and I'll smell her perfume. So, I mean, what you just said is, is completely true, but you have to have a spiritual eye to recognize if it's actually what you think it is or if it's your imagination. Right, right. Wow. Interesting stuff. Sometimes, Alice, people that are with with me will experience the same thing. It's like a manifestation of, wow, that really happened. I can't believe it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to keep writing? Do you have have enough to to keep going with this? Well, um, not not in this particular subject. Okay. I, I, I do have another book in the back of my head that is speaking to me to write it. Okay. But I I need to get this one rolling before the next one comes out because it's, it's it'll be totally different. It, okay. It's it it won't have anything to do with my um spirit life at all. Okay. But something else is compelling you to keep on writing. Yes. All right. Well then, I guess I'll be talking to you again. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so, too. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Same here, Alice. Thank you. Dr. Albert H. Gervati was an internationally known academic cardiothoracic surgeon when his wife suffered an acute thrombotic stroke and he became a caregiver. Then he was diagnosed with bone marrow cancer and he transitioned yet again, this time to patient. The name of his book, This to Me, follows his first book, Wet My Hands. I've always thought about writing, and then major things happen in my life. I went from being a provider to caregiver when my wife had her massive stroke, and now she has expressive aphasia. And then I got cancer three years ago in my spine, multiple myeloma. So I had to stop surgery. Luckily, I could come back academic. I've had complications and surgery. The whole impetus is I wanted to trace where people told me early in life that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't do anything. And then I proved them wrong by getting two doctorates in my whole career. As a matter of fact, I just had my 50th high school reunion and some of my classmates were blown away. But the reason for the book is I wanted to trace growing up, meeting my wife, which changed my life, you know, then military, undergraduate, medical school, two residencies, practice. And, um, you know, then what happened to me, you know, both emotionally, physically, spiritually with all these things. And, and the reason why the book is called This to Me is, is uh, was Wet My Hands was the first book. This to me is the second book. Wet My Hands was tying knots. This to me is being handled the scalpel. All right. So tell me about Wet My Hands. Yeah. So the first book traces my life going from growing up in Allentown, PA. Um, I talk about Allentown and where I grew up. I mean, then I talk about going in the military. And what changed me was when I went with my wife. She is a Women's Army Corps. I met her. Uh, we were going to be married 50 years now. 
and she's the one that inspired me and told me I could be a doctor. And uh, she's the one that helped me, you know, focus. <laughs> and uh, then it continues to trace, you know, my career, then my cancer. Then book two continues. And then in book two, I put some of my most interesting cases I did where I did, you know, surgery on people. No one else would touch them. I invented a surgery and, and it's continued. The book continues with, you know, my, my life right now you know, the chemo, all the things I've had to face. What procedure do we find out about in your book? A bunch of different thoracic procedures. One guy swallowed a nail in his lung. Another one had a big uh, abscess that I made little balls, and he looks like a turtle with eggs in his chest. Uh, another lady got shot 40 years previously in the abdomen, and a little piece of her spleen ended up in her lung, and it's sort of grown in her chest. And so 40 years later, I removed that. And then there's another guy with what's called a pseudosarcoma, like a 40-pound tumor on his leg that I took off so he could walk. And in another case, the lady had surgery, and bile from her liver was getting up in her lung. And I had to figure out how to get that all fixed. Weird cases, weird cases, you know? That's incredible. Yeah, it's like you were the guy. If there was a weird case, you were the guy to go to. Yeah, I to, what I said, I have to think out of the box, you know? But the idea for the book is I hope that it inspires, you know, many young medical students to understand that, you know, life changes. And when you become a patient, it becomes totally different. I don't like being a patient, you know, there's so many things can go wrong or, or stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, we don't think about that. You know, we just think about going to room 214. That's case number 42. Go to the operating room. And we can't do that. You know, these are individuals. These are people. And that's what I'm trying to espouse to my students. How long have you been a patient? Uh, the last, uh, no, four years, right? I'm just academic now. I run my department and I run a, a research lab and I take care of the, uh, the students who run our surgery rotation, but I'm not operating anymore. How, how are you dealing with this new role in your life? It's got to be hard. Well, that's why I said, I've got a different focus now and, you know, medical education and you know, doing the writing helps and, you know, I continue to do uh, my academic work. I've got, you know, collaboration over in physiology on human subjects. I'm on projects there. We've got our lab where we're, we're taking kidneys out of a pig and we put them on pump and we're extending the time that the kidney is being pumped. Right now it's 36 hours. We're pushing it to 96 hours with the hope that, you know, now we can maybe get more organs for transplant in the future. Talks about all the complications I've had. You know, I went into uh, uh, what's called hyponatremia. My sodium went down because people didn't give me my steroids that I was on. And I talk about that. I talk about, you know, what happens to you, you know, with all the major spine surgeries and the complications I've had, you know, with that. It continues to go. I had to have cataract surgery because the steroids destroyed my lenses. Um well, I had shoulder surgery. I just had a redo shoulder because the steroids ate up the bone in my in my shoulder. So I've had both shoulders replaced. Now I've got to go back. I had one done about three weeks ago, and I got to get the other one done in February. I would think it's difficult knowing because you know so much. Most patients don't know. That's the problem. Right. Right. I know too much. Yeah. And I try and get people and say, hey, I need this. I need this. And they ignore me. Oh. And I know what I'm talking about, right. you know, so that's frustrating. But you keep going. You keep going somehow. 
you got to be resilient. You can't sit down. That's me. People know me. As a matter of fact, they had a poster in the OR, and it was me, and it said, I get more done before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Because mm. I used to start surgeries early, 6.30 in the morning. I was doing a lot of cases. But you're still able to to educate students and... Yes. I gave a keynote speech at our College of Surgeons meeting uh, back in September about transitioning to a patient, and I had really good turnout. I had, you know... A, a couple hundred people listening on it. Okay. Did so. you talk about your book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that must have been great. Did you get a lot of questions? Oh, yeah. What kind of questions did you get? Well, they wanted to know, you know, kind of how, how can I keep going? You know, what are you doing to keep going? How, how do you do that? Look at what you've been through. You know, most people would have given up, but not me. And I really like coming to the university. I work part-time. I still get up at five in the morning and then come in and do some work and then go home by noon. So I'm just so used to that, you know, from all those years of being a surgeon, you know, I trained in the old days when there was no duty hour restrictions or things like that, you know? I never understood that. Yeah. We just work. Yeah. You work to get the job done. The other thing, I was so fortunate to have a wife that was supportive. Unfortunately, with her stroke now, she's getting more dementia. I'm so sorry. It's been hard. It's getting harder. Yeah. And she has expressive aphasia. That's when they know what they want to say, but doesn't come out from the stroke. Yeah. So she gets super frustrated because she's trying to tell me and I can't understand what she's trying to tell me, you know? It's so frustrating. So, but we got our cats. We got our Scottish full cats and those keep her busy. But the, the proceeds are all going to my scholarship fund here in Texas and in Scotland at the University of Strathclyde. And I'd like to really, you know, be able to have a nice big scholarship pot for them to use for students. You know, I mean, I don't think I'd ever be a New York Times bestseller, but the fact that I could maybe impact the scholarship fund and really build that for the students would be fantastic. Yeah, that's my goal. All right. Well, listen, thank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you. A retired mechanical engineer from San Diego, Thomas Dean, lives in Iowa now near his son's family and seven grandchildren. And he thought it was about time to share his life with them, his life story. Now all they have to do is read Thomas Dean, all about some guy, the autobiography of Thomas Charles Dean. Yes, this all started... I've had a lot of really fun things that I've done through my life. And uh, I've told people about some of them. And I got interviewed for a magazine article one time from for a yacht club that we belong to. And the guy interviewed me. He said, you should write a book because I was telling some of these things. And oh, several people told me, you should write a book. So I started thinking I'm 80 and I have all these grandchildren and stuff who've heard some of my stories, but they haven't heard the whole story. They might be really interested in hearing what, what I've done, you know, my, my exciting adventures, which they won't have the opportunity to do some of those things because times change. So they'll have their own adventures, but they can at least see what life was like back when I was a kid. And um, I read a book when I was a young guy. Uh, it's called The Golden Age of Homespun, where a guy wrote how life was in the late 1700s and early 1800s. It was completely different than what we do. I mean, they didn't have store to go to. They didn't have doctors to have anything. So I thought, boy, I was sure glad that guy took the time to do that. So maybe not today, but maybe sometime in the future, my book will be interesting to somebody who's see what 
what life was back way back in fifties, you know, in the nineteen fifties. <laughs> well, you say you've had some amazing adventures. What are they? I mean, you've done a lot of different things. Uh, I was very active in sports. I was blessed with a, a lot of athletic abilities. I was very fast. I was always the fastest kid in school, and and I, we loved to play football. When I was a kid growing up, we played tackle football with no no pads or helmets or anything. We just played. I actually got to a point where I was playing semi-pro football for a while, for about three years. I was doing that. And so one of the jobs I had was working with on a Navy project. Uh, I worked on the design and the, actually the proposal and then the design of a six-man submarine that the Navy SEALs would use. It was called a wet sub. They all wore scuba gear inside. The thing was flooded when it went under the water. I got into all the testing phases with that. I was working with a SEAL team. I was the only civilian on the team. And the first 33 times it, the sub went in the water, I was in it. So we had all of these testing things that we went through. We had some some incidences and some things that were you know more exciting than others and uh, some things that were just plain silly. So I wrote about all that. Wow. And then as I started getting older, I got into other sports I started playing soccer, and then I started coaching the kids, two boys and one girl, and kids were into into soccer and little league and that kind of stuff. Later, I got into senior Olympic volleyball, and I got nine senior Olympic medals, and we won the state championship one year playing in indoor six-man volleyball. So that was that was exciting. Yeah, uh, I was a certified diver, and all growing up, I was surfing. I did, you know, I lived in Southern California, so. My best friend and I just surfed all the time, and we went fishing all the time. Um, and then uh, in my engineering work, I went to work at a place called Battery Ashburn, which was an old gun emplacement down in San Diego on Point Loma. And I worked with a bunch of guys there that uh, on various Navy projects. As a consultant, I wasn't a hired as a civil service employee, but I was a, a consultant there. And um, some of the guys were into off-road racing, motorcycles and cars and this kind of stuff. And I started pit crewing for some of the racers on Baja 500 and 1000 things. And then pretty soon I got asked to help a guy with a, with a car he was building. So we built a race car and competed. We actually won the Baja 1000 once, the 500 once, and we got second in the 500 once. So we had really good success with that. And I started doing motorcycles because we were pre-running a lot of motorcycles. And I, I did a thing called the Takati 250. Okay which was really a lot of fun. Uh, all the while, you know, I got kids and, <laughs> you know, a wife who was very understanding and put up with all this nonsense. Yeah, she would have to be. And <laughs> Yeah, and we moved into a house in Escondido, and we found out we were in the county. We didn't have a fire department, so they were starting up a volunteer fire department, so I got into that, my wife and I both, and I became a captain in the fire department. So I had a fire truck parked in the yard for almost every night. And uh, we'd have to respond at all hours, all this while I'm working as an engineer for a couple different companies in Escondido. And, um, you know, it kind of goes on and on. <laughs> then I started playing, uh, uh, well, I, about that same time I was doing volleyball and soccer. You have a lot of energy. Then I got into racing, racing cars. A friend of mine had a, had a sports car. I raced, drove one time. For, it was an eight-hour race. I, I drove three hours a couple times for him up in Ontario, I guess, at the uh, Indy Light Track, at the Track of America, I think it's called. Uh, you know, we did real well in that. So I got to race cars, and then I started racing go-karts. 
and uh, I got pretty good at that. And you know, and then I'm I'm getting older, you know, and then all of a sudden I got all these grandchildren and stuff. And but a lot of really fun things happened. Some things were exciting, some things were fun, some things were just kind of silly. And then of course I wrote about all the stuff we did as a, as a young kid, you know, Halloween pranks that kind of thing and uh, nothing malicious, just silly stuff. Did you basically just write this for your family? Here's where I started. Like I said, people told me I should, I should write a book. So I thought, well, I could at least write this stuff, some of this stuff down for my grandchildren. And winter in Iowa is, you got plenty of time to do this stuff, you know? <laughs> so this last winter, I started thinking, I, I, gotta, I gotta write this stuff. I'm getting old, you know, I'm getting older and I don't want all this stuff to be just gone. Right. So I started making a list of things that I wanted to talk about, and the list got pretty long. Then I started reorganizing it into groups, you know, in order, so I could write it in some kind of an order, chronological and type of things, sports and flying. And I did a lot of flying and stuff, too, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Radio, uh, uh, sailplanes and um, radio control planes and model airplanes, and, and I raced model model cars. Hey, I, I just was constantly looking for adventure and looking for fun stuff to do, and I did it. I, I never said, no, nah, I probably shouldn't do that. I just did it. I, I just kind of thought, I got to do that. I tried to squeeze every ounce of excitement and adventure out of life as I could. I, I, I did it. <laughs> well, I mean, is that your message? Well, for me, it worked. Uh, it's, I think guys and guys and girls are, men and women are almost a different species. I mean, we are totally different in most cases. Some women are like, are looking for adventures. Most women are not, I don't think. But guys pretty much uniquely are always looking for something fun and, and exciting to do. And a lot of them don't do it when they have the chance. I tried to do things, if I had an opportunity, I didn't go looking for some of these things. They they just appeared. And I said, yes, I'll do it. Right. So my wife and I did a lot of things together. We did a lot of river rafting, canoe trips down different rivers and things. And, and we had some, you know, really exciting moments with those. And so there wasn't a lot of things that I, I didn't get to do. So I would say, yeah, it's... I'm not trying to tell anybody how to do stuff. I just tell them what I did, and maybe they'll think, gee, I, even, you know, like my grandchildren, especially. I, I'm hoping that they'll at least get the idea from some of the stuff that I did that it's possible to do things and still have a real life. So, so where do you where do you go from here? I would I would love for this to go out, yeah. you know, and be 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 read by well, people. Years ago, I read uh, I, I read James Harriet's books, you know, uh, All Creatures Great and Small. It was kind of the same. I'm not saying that some of it in that same uh, category, but it's it's the same idea day by day stuff he did. He did no no plot, no no beginning, no ending, just day to day what he did. And he wrote in such a way that it was it was fun to read. And I I'm hoping my book will be accepted in the same light as being just something interesting to read uh, uh, there's no preaching in it there's no trying to tell people what to do just telling them what i did right. and uh, hopefully they'll get the idea that gee i could do that too you know if it's not too late you know yeah well you know people are comparing me to mark twain right now anyway nice yeah i'm the same height and weight apparently there you go so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you so much i've enjoyed this. I, I think i really should Go out and uh, 
do some stuff. Listen, if anybody can do it, you can. I, I have a lot of faith in you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've always kind of lived my life life that way. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. We should all yeah. do that. All right. Thank you. Born and raised in Tobago, Wendy Jack has been writing for as long as she can remember. And her book, Boo Boy and Endy, is just the beginning. I started writing from since I was nine years old at home. I would write little poems and skits for my church. So I started off at the age of nine. What kind of skits? Um, plays and stuff like that. Little Christmas, different plays, whatever came to my mind. Okay, how many books have you written? Um, so far I have three other books, but I never, I never really published them. This is my first one that I published. What made you publish this book? Because I'm a lover of animals. Okay. My, my book is about this girl and her a cat, because of what have happened in her life, have led her into a life of crime. Because of all the downfall that she encountered, she just decided to that the best thing for her was to just get involved into a life of crime. And the cat, her and the cat were doing all these crimes until she fell madly in love with the detective that was really on her trail and from there she, her, her whole life was changed what kind of crimes was she doing um robbing banks oh <laughs> it's a bit of an adventure it's a bit of romance if there is sadness in there there it, it's just everything everything how does she end up becoming friendly with the detective well, there was one day when he saw her in the park and he talked with her. And from there, it was like love at first sight. But he never really knew what she was into until later on when his chief, when there was started a, a bunch of robberies. And then when he and his partner put two and two together, then they realized that it was the girl that he fell in love with, it was her and her cat doing the crimes. What was her cat doing? But was was it the lookout or something? What was going on? With he was, a, it is really funny because, <laughs> because the first encounter they were in the park and she went to scope out the bank. She pretended that she was just like any ordinary customer just going in and looking around. And the cat was in the park and the cat was struggling with this bag and the uh, older couple was there and uh, the elderly lady just saw the cat and fell in love with the car the cat so she was telling her husband oh, i think he got something let's see what it is and when they opened it it was a superman outfit and then they just realized that the cat wanted the superman outfit put on him and they did that and when they put the uh, put the outfit on him, he he disappeared, he was gone. But that was the first the, the first crime that they did. He went into the bank and then everybody was amazed. That was the the distraction. Amazed to see a cat in a Superman outfit. So everybody was so um taken by the cat. Even the 
the security guard that was there was they were just blown away by this cat because it's a very very beautiful cat and while he was distracting everybody she was, <laughs> it's really funny she was she came in and she disguised herself as an old lady and next thing you know the cat ran in the back where all the money is and then the security ran behind him and that is when he he had this sign in his this thing in his mouth and when the detective i'm sorry when the security guard took the paper out of his mouth he said this is a hold up empty empty <laughs> empty so it's just it's it it's just really really it has his comedy part it's just funny and it had a serious moment because later on she got pregnant and um she almost lost the baby she was out there sleeping in a car because there was no way she where she was living the guy that she was living with at first he died so where they were living she could not pay the rent she couldn't do anything so she she just had to move with the cat and then she was just like on the street with the baby and the cat yeah yes yes she was in the park because a tragedy has hit her her parents got burnt up in the in in their apartment so it's them her sadness started from there where her parents died and she had to go and live with her teacher a teacher took her in, but then one thing led to the to the next, and that's where her her downfall started. And when the teacher died, she could not afford the apartment, so she had to leave. And that is when, on the street and not not being able to maintain herself, she just think that the best thing for her to do was to just start rubbing banks and stuff like that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, she was pregnant for him, but he did not even know. Oh, the detective got her pregnant. Yes, yes, yes. And he didn't know she was living on the street. Yeah, no, he did not know. Doing all of these crimes. Exactly, until later on. Oh, I see. But then, when when his partner and him found out who really was doing, they could not even tell the chief. Even though they were put on the case, they could not really tell him because he was in love with her. And he didn't want her to go to jail or anything. But in the end, it ended up nice. So where did you come up with this story? Uh, <laughs> um, I, since from a kid, I my imagination is very, very wide. It's like, I will, there are times, sometimes a whole movie would just act out in my in my mind and i think what what happened is that with all the other books that i wrote it's like things would be ideas would be swimming in my mind and one day i said why are all these ideas swimming in my mind why don't i just get a, a scrapbook and start jotting things down and that's what i started doing so you've been jotting things down all of these years Yes, yes, I've been jotting things down. And the first book that I wrote was The Ultimate Betrayal. But I never published it. 
Okay. I just wrote it. I started it in Tobago and I finished it in the United States when I got here. And it was th that book is about a, a crime family. Okay. And I call the I'm Gino Santangelo. Nice, nice name. Yeah. <laughs> what happens now? Do people know that you wrote a book? Oh yes, my. As a matter of fact, I I came from a family of twelve. I have eleven siblings, and I never told wow. nobody. I never told nobody what I was doing because. Even though I have 11 siblings, I'm a loner. And when I say I'm a loner, I mean I, I am just a, my demeanor is very, very quiet. So I do things in my own quiet time. So when I started doing my writings, I did not want to tell this person and that person because I did not want the negativity. I just wanted to do things in my own quiet time. Girlfriend of mine and I supposed to go down at Barn and Nobles, but because of my line of work and hers, we have not done that yet. But I have all of that into play to um to go and do. Yeah, it's on your list. Yes, so you yes. gonna keep writing? Um, I never stop writing because to this day I still write poems and stuff for my church. But I just calm down on that a little bit. But um, writing is my passion. Will you publish another book? Oh, yes, definitely. All right. Yes. All right, I'm looking forward to that. Yes, thank you. And, and you have a great day. You too, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.